0: I would like this morning to begin with a little quiz, and I want to put the question here on the screen. How many times do the phrases clear conscience or good conscience appear in the New Testament Scriptures? Is it four, five, seven, or nine? What do you think? Well, actually, if you put clear conscience four times, good conscience five times together... It's nine times. Now, any phrase that appears that many times is a very significant phrase. And the fact is, the conscience is one of God's most important gifts to mankind. It is a primary vehicle by by which God speaks to us, calls us to Himself, and changes our hearts. Notice what the Apostle Paul had to say about his conscience in Romans 9.1, he said, I speak the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. And so clearly here, the Holy Spirit works through our conscience. He either confirms that we are in the right, or he convicts us that we are in the wrong. And that's why it is absolutely vital that the condition of our conscience is essential for our spiritual well-being. The Bible says it's possible to have an evil conscience. Hebrews 10.22 That's a conscience that does not properly distinguish between good and evil. We can also have a defiled conscience. That's Titus 1.15 That's a conscience that's comfortable with the pollution of sin. And then we can even have a seared conscience. First Timothy 4.2, the word seared there was used of a hot iron that was used to brand skin, making it callous and unsensitive. And we can so harden our conscience that it becomes callous, it becomes unsensitive. For all these reasons, it is very, very important, absolutely critical, that we let God work in our conscience to make it clear and to make it good. In fact, I want you to notice that this was the Apostle Paul's lifelong goal. Look what he says, Acts 24.16. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and before man. Today in our series on the life of Joseph, we are going to learn how God works on our conscience. And so the title of our message today is uh, very simple in the series. As we come to chapter 42, It is a fruitful life, strives to keep a clear conscience. Now we know that God has brought Joseph to where He wants him to be. He is the prime minister of Egypt. But there's unfinished business, isn't there? There's ten brothers who are not where they need to be. In fact, of the ten brothers, we could say they have an evil, defiled, and seared conscience. And so, how does God reach them? And how does God reach you? How does He reach me? Well, that's what this chapter is all about. Let's learn together this morning. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis 42? In the chair Bible in front of you, it's about page 42. And just before I read, let's take a moment and pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the conscience you have placed in each one of us. And regardless, Lord, of how we respond to it, we thank you that you are able to work in such a way that you awaken the conscience. And an awakened conscience is the key to coming back to you, to having peace with you, and then to have peace with those around us. Teach us now these very important lessons that they might sink deep into our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen. Look with me, if you would, at verses 1 through 5, and we begin by understanding this lesson, that God will will work to awaken a guilty conscience. If you're here today and there might be some guilt in your conscience that is unresolved, you can be certain of this, that God will work until your conscience is awakened. Let's look at verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now at this point, we can assume that the brothers are not rightly related to God. Their attitudes and actions have shown that. And they are also not right with each other. Their food is gone. Their families are hungry. And according to verse 1, they're not cooperating with each other to do anything about it. Uh, Finally, their father Jacob says to them, essentially, why are you standing around looking at one another? Why aren't you doing something about this crisis and this hunger and this lack of food? And we understand what's going on. Years of sin, deception, distrust, and hardened hearts have left them fragmented and disunified, and now in the midst of a crisis, they cannot work together. By the way, I think we all know that the Bible teaches this, that a falling out with God will eventually lead to a falling out with each other. You can almost count on that. When we fall out of our relationship with God, it will lead to disunity and fragmentation with others. And so what God begins to do is to start to work on the consciences of these ten men. In the last century, there was a wonderful pastor and Bible teacher by the name of R.A. Torrey. And I want you to notice this very, very helpful statement he made. He said, somewhere in the depths of every man's heart is the consciousness of sin. And all we have to do is work away until we touch that point. Every man's conscience is on our side. And that is absolutely true. When God wants to turn us to Him, He has a weapon that none of us can escape. We can stifle our conscience, we can ignore it, we can harden it, but we can never entirely be free from it. And God will work away until He touches that nerve that is just too painful to ignore. Some of us here today can remember the time when God did this for us. Others of us need to be aware today of how God may be doing this in our life. Now, as we look at this, we begin to see the means that God sometimes can use. And let's notice the means that He used with these ten very hardened brothers. Notice that He used a place, Egypt. Did you notice in verses 1 to 3 as we read? Egypt is mentioned three times in all of the first three verses. Not only were the brothers fragmented, and that's why they didn't go down to Egypt, but why else were they hesitant to go to Egypt? It's because that's where they had sold their brother 20 years ago. In fact, later in verse 13, they assume now it is very possible that their brother Joseph is dead. And every time now, Jacob says to them, go to Egypt, go to Egypt, go to Egypt... That place haunts their thoughts. Is our brother that we sold now dead? Notice another thing that God used a memory Joseph's alleged accident. In verse 4, Jacob says. I'm not going to send your youngest brother Benjamin with you because I'm afraid that harm might come upon him. The word harm there is a reference to a fatal accident. And it reminds the brothers of the lie they told to their father about Joseph, that he had been killed by a wild animal in a fatal accident. And they cannot shake the uneasy conscience that the lie that they told to Jacob is still ongoing after 20 years, and he does not know the truth. Then there's a third thing that God uses. God uses something that the Bible calls retributive justice. That is a concept that the punishment fits the crime. And throughout the Bible, the Bible says that God has worked into the very nature of the world retributive justice. Proverbs 26, 27 puts it this way, if somebody digs a pit for somebody else, they will fall into that pit themselves. If somebody rolls a stone on somebody else, the stone will roll back on them. And often what happens is the sins we commit against others return on our own heads in the same form. We know that, don't we? Who does a bully sometimes meet? A bigger bully. What happens to the gossiper? They get gossiped about. What sometimes happens to the cheat? In a deal, they end up getting taken The liar many times becomes the person who ends up being deceived themselves. The betrayer becomes betrayed. And the mean? They get meanness. Now I want you to notice that Joseph begins to work in his brother's lives in this way. Using retributive justice. And we might say, why does he act in this way? After all, things have turned out so well for him. He has uh, uh, reached the pinnacle where God brought him to be. It all has happened because of the evil actions. Providence of God has overruled. And he now is a great success. Why would he act this way? Let me give you a little thought from Martin Luther. Martin Luther says that Joseph's dealings are similar to God's dealings when leading sinners to repentance. As we read now what Joseph does, recognize that this is not just about Joseph and his brothers. This is about God and you and me. What Joseph does with them, God often does with us To lead us to repentance. Look at verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him and their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and he spoke roughly to them. Where did you come from, he said? They said from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. It's been over 20 years. He's dressed as an Egyptian. He's speaking a different language. He's clean-shaven, not having a beard like the Hebrews would have. They do not recognize him. And Joseph, verse 9, remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them, and he said to them, "'You are spies.'" You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my Lord. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father and one On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Notice how Joseph, in retributive justice, now starts to work on their conscience. Verse 7 says, He treated them harshly like strangers. You remember what they did to him back in chapter 37? They would not speak shalom to him. The common greeting that means peace or well being. Verse 7 tells us he spoke roughly to him, to them. Remember how when he appeared to them out in the wilderness to check on their welfare, they roughed him up. They tore off his coat of many colors and they threw him in a pit. He calls them spies seven times in this chapter. They are falsely accused at spies. And you remember when we first started the Joseph narrative that he brought back a bad report about their behavior and they hated him for that. You spied on us. And then notice verse 17. He put them in prison for 3 days. We know that Joseph had been in prison at least three years. Very likely, this was one day for each year. Sometimes people look at this and they say, Boy, this seems awful harsh. Many years ago, a letter was written into the Back to the Bible broadcast. There had been some teaching on this chapter, and the person wrote the letter said, I think Joseph was wrong. He was cruel in what he did. And Pastor Warren Wearsby, who received that letter, had this to say. Listen to his words. I believe that Joseph dealt with his brothers in a patient, loving, and wise way. And that's why his approach succeeded. God had to bring Joseph's brothers to the place where they admitted the evil things they had done to their brother and their father. Shallow repentance leads to an experience that isn't reconciliation at all. It's only a fragile truce. And God could never be satisfied with a fragile truce. And this was His working to awaken their conscience. Now let me say to you, as we think about this, we must never forget two verses that are absolutely critical when God is working on our conscience. These verses will make all the difference in the world whether we respond to God in the right way or not. They are Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. So important, they are quoted again in the book of Hebrews. Would you read this with me? It is very important. Join me. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. And do not resent His rebuke. Because the Lord disciplines those He loves... As a father, the son he delights in. The Lord's discipline, his rebuke, it's because of love. It may seem harsh at the time, but it is the loving hand of God. Look at this child's hand in the father's hand for just a moment. That is an embrace of protection, an embrace of concern and love. The father's chastening of that child may be misunderstood by the child at the time, but all of us who are parents know that it is for the child's good. And we must say at this point as well, that when God is chastening us or rebuking us in love, it is never vindictive. It is never His attempt to strike us back or to pay us back. At the cross of Jesus Christ, when the Savior hung there for us, God poured out His retribution, His just wrath, His vengeance on His Son at the cross. And when we come to that cross, the Bible says in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? This morning? So... When God works in a disciplinary way, His goal is to awaken our conscience to His love. That's what He's doing. May I just pause for a moment? Is God working on your conscience in any of these ways? Is He? Maybe there's a place And it reminds you of a sin committed in that place. Maybe it's a memory that you are trying to repress, but it keeps haunting your mind and your soul. Maybe the way you've treated others is now the very way you're being treated, and you've never put together the two. Oh, what's happening to me is what I did to others. You see, God is doing in your life exactly what Joseph did. That he might bring you to peace with him. Now clearly then, if this is God's means of awakening the conscience, then we have to respond in a proper way. And that really becomes the burden of the rest of the chapter because the second lesson here that we learn is a correct response to guilt is essentially to change our hearts. Let me just say today, we live in a world of the vanishing conscience. We live in a world in which people want to be anything but guilty. We live in a world in which the world says to us, you shouldn't be this hard on yourself. After all, you're human. But I want to tell you that that's a lie. That is a lie from the pit of hell. If we are going to have a changed heart, there has to be a proper response to guilt. And that's what begins to happen in the lives of these men. Look with me, if you would, at verse 21. Then they said to one another, "'In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, "'in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, "'and we did not listen. "'This is why this distress has come upon us.' "'And Reuben answered them, "'Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, "'but you did not listen? "'So now there comes a reckoning for his blood.' They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and he wept. Dan, this morning, as I got to this verse, you almost want to weep. There are times you're you're reading the Bible and you come to a verse like this and your heart just can't remain callous to it. For the first time, these brothers who engaged in slave trading, their own brother, and now thought he might be dead, are beginning to feel guilty over what they've done. And Joseph cannot compose himself and he leaves and he weeps. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Here's the first essential response. Number one, we must confess the sinfulness of sin. We must confess the sinfulness of our sin. Three days in prison. And the threat of death had done its work. By the way, as you pray for me tonight in the prison, pray that the prison will do its work in the men who are listening to me. These brothers are now facing their guilt Do you know this is the only time in the whole book of Genesis there's a personal acknowledgement of sin like this? When Reuben says, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? It is the only time in Genesis there is a personal acknowledgement like this. Fifty chapters in Genesis, this is the only time. Let me say something to you. What we call wrongdoing is very important. An evil conscience will evade hard words, but an awakened conscience calls sin what God calls it. I want you to think again about their actions back in chapter 37. Jealousy, hatred, thoughts of murder, aggression, slave trading, 20 years of deceit. Brothers and sisters, those are not mistakes. Those are not errors. Those are terrible wrongs. Do you know the word sin that is used here that Reuben says, did I not tell you not to sin? It is a word that means to do wrong, to be culpable, to offend, to commit a sin. They now, for the first time, are calling it what God calls it. I read this week about a pastor who, when he became a believer, this was the experience he had with his conscience. Listen to his words. When I was in the hand of the Holy Spirit under conviction of sin, I had a clear and sharp sense of the justice of God. Sin, whatever it might be to other people, became to me an intolerable burden. Only when sin to you is an intolerable burden, is the conscience truly awakened. Only when sin to me is an intolerable burden, is my conscience truly awakened. Notice the second thing they did. They accepted God's chastisement. Look at verse 25. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? this is the first recorded time the brothers ever mention God. Joseph, in practically every sentence he speaks, mentions God, but their hearts had shut God out. He was uninvolved and distant as far as they were concerned. But now they see, they cannot deny it. They know God is dealing with us in the midst of these events. By the way, did you notice here what verse 28 says about them? Their hearts failed them and they turned trembling to one another. You recall how brash and cocky they had been? Here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him and throw him in this pit. Then we'll see what will become of his dreams. Now what do we see? They're trembling. Their hearts have failed them. You know what God says to us in Isaiah 66, two: To this one I will look. To him who is humble, contrite, and trembles at my word. When the conscience begins to work in this way, humbling us, making us contrite, trembling in this way, God says it's at that point I begin to look. Brothers and sisters, one of the evidences of a truly repentant heart is we humble ourselves under God's hand. We stop fighting Him, rebelling Him, against Him, and we submit to His discipline. We accept His chastisement. 27 years ago, I was a very young pastor. It was 1991. I was working on this very passage, and I pulled out a sheet from my old notes 27 years ago. And in the margin, I wrote these words. If we become defensive, angry, and uncooperative, we have not... Changed. It is being humble, contrite, and trembling at God's Word that shows an awakened conscience. And what a help in my own life all these years later to pull this out and say, God, help me to be that way when You are Working in my conscience. Now, you know how the rest of the story continues. The brothers return home and they recount everything that happened to their father Jacob. Look at how Jacob responds, verse 35 As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Jacob is just as clueless of the ways of God, really, as they are. And he wallows now in self-pity, refusing to send Benjamin back. In fact, their whole grain supply will have to be gone before finally he convinces, I'm going to have to send Benjamin back because that's what the prime minister requires. But I want you to notice Reuben. Look at Reuben. Is this the Reuben you know? Or is there a change beginning to happen? Look at verse 37. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left of his mother Rachel. If harm should happen to him, there's that memory, that fatal accident that they had perpetrated onto their father. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring my gray hairs down with sorrow to Shell. Look what Reuben does. Clearly this is a ridiculous suggestion What grandfather is going to enact payment by killing his two grandsons? But we are seeing now something different in Reuben. Up till now, what's Reuben been like? Weak? Self-serving? Blame-shifting? Reuben was always the one pointing his finger at his other brothers and saying, you know, it's your fault But now he shows true concern for the potential loss of his father. As silly as his suggestion is, he's willing to sacrifice. I'll lose my sons before you lose your son. And twice he says, I will bring him back to you. What is he now doing? He's taking responsibility. He's taking responsibility. You remember what Zacchaeus said in the Gospel of Luke when he met Jesus and was wonderfully saved? He said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. By the way, it was only after that that Jesus said, Today has salvation come to this house. True repentance and salvation always leads to more responsible and right living. It always will. And if God has awakened your conscience and and brought you to salvation and, and Jesus has graciously saved you, you will not live this Christian life perfectly. None of us do. But you will always want to have that tender conscience that leads you to responsible, right living. And if you are a Christian who has gotten out of God's will and God graciously reaches down and begins to work on your conscience, you'll always do what we see here. You'll have a new desire to act responsibly. Some of us are here today and we can say, Pastor Brian, I've been through this process. And if you've been through this process, you know, as hard as it may have been, God loves you because He's changing your heart. And if you're here today and you're resisting this process, that's why this chapter is here. God wants to bring you to this place. As I close this morning, there's one final verse that mentions the conscience that I want to close with. It is 1 Timothy 1.5. And notice what it says. The aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And that's what God wants for every one of us. That is His ultimate priority for every one of us. Love that can only come from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And God will do everything that He needs to do, everything that is essential to do, to bring us to that place where we are loving Him and loving each other. And would you let God, this very moment, bring you to that place? Let's bow together, shall we? And let's pray. As we're quiet before the Lord, maybe you are here today and you can say, The Lord has dealt with me just like this. And He has brought me to a place where my heart is changed, I'm different. There is a humility, a, a contriteness, a, a serious about His Word that was absent before. And if that's true of you today, you can thank God. You can recognize His discipline and His rebuke is His great love for you. Our character is always more important to God than our comfort. And if He must make us very uncomfortable to give us the character and likeness of Christ, He will do that. And if He has brought you to that place, is bringing you to that place, thank Him. He loves you very, very much. Maybe you're here today and your heart is hardened. Your conscience is defiled. It's seared as with a hot iron. And even God Himself has been shut out. Listen, your conscience is the weapon that is on God's side. You can harden it. You can evade it. You can refuse to listen to it. But God is able to touch that nerve that will cause you to be exposed. And today, if you need to come to Christ and surrender to Him, do that. Today, if you need the Lord to cleanse and rid you of the things that stand between you and Him and you and others, let Him begin that process. Father, today, thank You that You are a wise, good, and gracious God. And thank You for the wonderful gift of our conscience. Thank You for the Holy Spirit who works in us. Continue to draw us to Yourself. That we may walk with a good and clear conscience before You and before others. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.